I want to dare to say to you that of all the many different goals that are constantly being held out for all of us to follow in this life, amongst the many different destinations that are pictured as the ideal towards which we should be striving, the greatest goal, the most important pursuit of all, is to grow in Christ's likeness. The greatest goal of human life is to learn to love like Jesus. I don't think that any of the other goals that we might be seduced into following, misled or distracted into going after, can even touch the significance, the satisfaction, the ultimate influence of getting to the end of our lives and being found by God and by the people that are gathered around that graveside someday, to be found by them as somebody who loved a lot like Jesus did. Who loved a lot like Jesus. Nobody, of course, gets there overnight. Most people don't get there at all. But those who do get there, get there because they have take, taken intentional steps. They don't get there by accident, by simply wishing for it to happen. They get there through an intentional journey. While each person's journey, yours or mine or somebody sitting next to you, is unique, it is also true that people uh, seem to experience in the spiritual life certain common stages. Those stages are reached through certain familiar kinds of steps. And the people that make this pilgrimage in life all face certain kinds of common challenges. It takes a lot of purposefulness to run this race. It is easy to get off the track, to fall down. I know many times how much I have need, needed those who came to pick me up when I had fallen down. And this is why we're calling this the intentional journey. It takes intentionality to stay on the course. And like all journeys, this one also has a beginning, a starting place that can be called the time of discovering faith. And I want to think about that with you today this first season of the spiritual life that is all about discovering faith. Maybe you're at this particular point right now in your own journey. Or maybe you'll get there soon. Or maybe you remember passing through that time. You may know somebody else who is at the discovering faith season of life or can help somebody who will be because of what you're going to think about uh, this morning and the days to come. But to get a feeling for this particular stage of faith, I want to invite you to open up the Bible with me to Luke chapter 19. You can use the pew Bibles that are in front of you or open your own copies of the Scripture. And we're going to walk verse by verse through this remarkable story of somebody who was in this discovering faith season of life. The Bible says, and I quote in Luke chapter 19 and verse 1, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to stop right there because even in those particular words, we're being given an incredibly crucial insight into the nature of the spiritual journey. In fact, in those opening words, we're being told something about the premise of the spiritual journey as the Bible conceives of it. People talk today a lot about spirituality. Raise your hand if you've heard people in the culture around you talk about being spiritual. Yeah, it's all over the discussion 
uh, roundtable today. Many, many people who talk about spirituality today talk of it primarily, if you listen carefully, primarily in terms of human action. They speak of my spiritual journey as if spirituality is fundamentally about who? Me. Me, my, mine, and I is the focus of the spiritual discussion in so many cases. Now, now that is a form of spirituality, I grant you, and it may be a very popular form of spirituality, but this particular kind of navel-gazing spirituality is not to be confused with the journey with Jesus. It is a very different pathway, this Jesus pathway that he calls us upon. Um, In fact, the tendency to think of spirituality as fundamentally about me, my, mine, and I is not a spiritual stage, but a spiritual cage. It's a place that it's very easy for any of us, I suppose, uh, to get stuck. The Bible, when we reads it, read it, makes this really radical assertion, and it, and it's so radical, frankly, that 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 I think that we um, we need to sit with it for just a moment because uh, it's calling us to an, a very different approach to the spiritual life. The Bible teaches that the spiritual life is first and foremost about the movement and presence of the Spirit of God. It is first and foremost about what God is doing. And I'm just going to take a little parenthesis here and say that it's fascinating to me. How many of you have ever worn or seen those WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do? I've ha- I have one. They're great bracelets. And they remind us to think about Jesus. And it's a valuable tool. But I was thinking about this the other day as I was looking at this bracelet in my drawer that, 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 that I think about what Jesus would do so I can go back, take something from Jesus' life, and apply it to my life. Where's the focus? Me. What I want to do. I think a better bracelet would be W-I-J-D. What is Jesus doing? What's, What's he out there doing through the power of his spirit? And how do I take my life and conform it to his, to what Jesus is really doing? in the world today. And we're given an insight into this particular way of looking at things in this passage. Uh, The Bible teaches us that life is all about God passing through. He's always passing through human lives, always seeking to transform and to renew and to discover and to uncover human beings. The Apostle John, in fact, writes about this in this wonderful passage from the first chapter of his book, uh, The Gospel According to John. John tells us that spiritual life is about the God who came to make his dwelling place amongst human beings, hoping that we would recognize him, hoping that we would take our eyes off of our navels and look out and see him on the move. Notice what he was doing and see his glory. St. Augustine, one of the great early leaders of the Christian movement, called this prevenient grace prevenient grace. In other words, it's the grace of God that comes to save us and to touch us even before we wake up to it. Uh, It's the grace of God that makes it even possible for us to notice him. This is God passing through. And, and, And Augustine went on to say that God comes to meet human beings 
at that particular point where we're all wrapped up in ourselves. Right? We're all wrapped up in ourselves. That's where God wants to particularly press in. And and, uh, Augustine called this sin the root problem of humanity. In fact, he defined this, this, um, this problem with humanity in a Latin phrase that uh, I put up on the screen for us. And the phrase is, incurvatus in se. We suffer from incurvatus in se. This is a very good uh, phrase for middle schoolers to learn. Because it will impress the heck out of your Latin teacher when you get to high school. And it means a turning inward upon self. A curving in on self. And it's precisely this curving in upon self that we're constantly being invited to do by the world around us. To pay more attention to what's going on with me, uh, with my budget, with, uh, with my situation in this economy, with you know, just me and me uh, all the time. And God is trying to actually turn us outward instead, to, to move us progressively, to transform us from this self-centric to a God-centric and to an other-centric point of view. That's why I was so excited about seeing 75 of our middle schoolers denying themselves, you know, giving up food for 30 hours in order to develop resources that they could throw out there into the world and meet the needs of hungry people um, and children in need of education and the like. This is an evidence of of the movement of the spiritual life as the Bible describes itself. Uh, the, the Bible says that the end of the spiritual life will be a, an orientation towards this godlike giving away of self. Um, I could say so much more about that, but I'll leave it there. Just notice now how, how, how we see this actually happening in what goes on next in the biblical storyline. Luke goes on, and I quote, A man was there, now we're in Jericho, remember? We're in the city of Jericho. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, to appreciate what's going on in just that little snippet, it's helpful to understand that in the ancient world, to be a tax collector was to hold a double-edged sword, a sword that had one good edge that you could cut with and one dangerous edge that could cut you. Uh, on On the positive edge side, the blade of being a tax collector could really work for you if you had that job. The Romans, who were in control of Israel at this time, would actually auction off the job of tax collector to the highest bidder. And whoever uh, threw in enough money got the job to be a tax collector. And it was a great deal. Why? Because tax collecting had three pretty easy rules, simple rules. Here was rule number one. Go out into your district and collect as much money as you possibly can from the people in your district. Get as many people signed up to give you money as you can. That's rule one. Rule number two. Give a portion of it to Rome. Rule number three. Keep the rest for yourself. So I raise $14,000. And I can keep a bunch for myself. I like this. And the Bible says that Zacchaeus got the job and played those rules brilliantly. In fact, he was so good at it that the Bible says that he was a chief tax collector. He was in the corner office of tax collectors. And he was wealthy. In a world where not a lot of people were wealthy, Zacchaeus 
Zacchaeus had the iPhones. Zacchaeus had the flat screens. Zacchaeus was wealthy. But the other edge of the sword was really sharp, too, and it was costly. Uh, tax collectors were regarded by the people of, um, of that time as collaborators with the hated Roman oppressors. Um, they were regarded as uh, people that had sold out uh, to, to, for bucks. Um, and they were viewed as greedy thieves, only out for themselves. To put it in perspective, Jericho was the financial capital of Israel at this time. It was the Wall Street of that day, and Zacchaeus was the Bernie Madoff of his day. That's it. He made a lot, but it had a big cost. He was curved in on himself, Zacchaeus was, in a way that was damaging other people and hurtful to his own soul. Isn't that the way that sin works in our lives? my, My experience is this is how it works in my life. It looks like such a great strategy for getting wealthy in some way. And then, and then I find out that it's impoverished or bankrupted me in another way. And, um, and that's, the, that's the problem with this curving in on self. It looks like it's going to get us more, and we wind up actually with less. And the people around us, affected by our choices, wind up with less. Maybe it was just being so hated that eventually started to change Zacchaeus. You know, I mean, people just didn't like him. And he got tired of just being, you know, people scowling at him on the, as, he, as he went by you know, this, on the streets. Um, perhaps it was guilt over all of the people he'd ripped off over the years and hurt. Maybe Zacchaeus was just at that season of life when he, he'd begun to kind of wake up to the reality that it was not enough to have everything on the outside if, if your inside was messed up. Um, perhaps he'd heard other people talking enough about this this bizarre carpenter from Nazareth, this rabbi, this Jesus guy, that he was just curious to know more about him, to find out what the buzz was all about. Whatever the case, and maybe it was just some combination of all of what I've suggested, the Bible says that Zacchaeus, and it says here, wanted to see who Jesus was. And, and, and the, the Greek word that is translated there as wanting suggests that he was yearning, he was hungering to find out who Jesus was. It had to have been more than a passing interest, frankly, that drove him to Jesus. You know, tax collectors were just not prone to going out into big mobs of people. Can you understand why? Yeah, somebody might recognize them. You know, you know there's Zacchaeus, you know. But, um, you know, if Zacchaeus had been a big, you know, brawny guy, maybe, maybe he'd have gone out. But he, the Bible says he was a short man. He was a wee little man, he was, Zacchaeus. And uh, so it took some kind of motivation to get him out in the midst of the crowd. Um, a powerful longing in Zacchaeus to risk the crowd. Uh, there had to have been some kind of deep need in this guy. There had to be some kind of sense of dawning uh, uh, or some sense of possibility of grace that, that could be found. Because Zacchaeus really takes intentional steps 
to make sure that he sees more. He not only goes out in the crowd, when he can't see from that vantage point, the Bible says, and I quote, he ran ahead. He ran ahead. And then that wasn't enough. He climbed up a sycamore fig tree since Jesus was coming that way. What is Jesus doing? He takes steps to get into position to see more. Have you ever been to the tree? Have you ever been to a place in your life where there was a dawning, a hunger in you, a need, a dawning sense of awareness that God had something more for you, or that maybe God was real and you'd never really sensed that in the past? Uh, have you ever been to the sycamore tree? You remember that moment in your life when you got to a place where you saw God on the move in some way and you, you wanted to respond? Are you maybe there, some of us right now? Uh, some of you know I, I was an atheist uh, until I was 18. Um, I just thought that religion and belief in God was uh, mainly a fantasy or a crutch for stupid and weak people. Uh, and, and when in the space of a few months our family went through this sort of this cascade of serious losses, I, I frankly no longer saw my investment strategies in life as paying off. Um, it was like I had put all of, all of myself and my hopes in this mutual fund and like it had, the bottom had dropped out of the market on, in reality. And, I, and I, I was searching, I was hungering, I was longing, I was ready for something more dependable. And, and, and one August, I found myself in the company of the group of people that seemed to be wealthy in a way I wasn't. There was a love in these people. They were not perfect. You know, some of them were kind of geeky and some of them were, you know, a little overbearing. And some, but there was nonetheless in them this quality of love and intentional kind of concern for other, others and a, and a peacefulness and a, and a joy in them that I did not have in my life and was hungry for. And wanted to know more about. And I remember the night that one of them read this story that had been told by Jesus about this shepherd who had this big flock of sheep. And um, it was, you know, like he had a lot of sheep. But apparently one of the sheep went missing. And in the story, Jesus says the shepherd goes out into the dark, as I imagine, a dark, stormy night uh, to find that one lost sheep. And I, here I am, I'm sitting there. And I'm listening to this story, and all of a sudden, this bizarre thing happens. And um, it's like this voice is whispering inside of me. Dan, I am that shepherd. And you are that sheep. You're that lamb. I'm trying to discover where you are so you can come to know me. And I felt like these warm arms, I couldn't see them, I couldn't touch them, but I felt like these warm arms were wrapping around me. And even though I had tons of questions and lots of doubts, I just felt in the depths of my being, I want to go with that man. I want to go with that shepherd. I want to go with him from here. And, and that's been my journey uh, uh, since then. You know, going step by step with him, wandering off the path and getting confused and losing sight of him and losing the ability to hear his voice amidst all the other voices. But 
that's that's been the journey for me uh, since since I was 18. A young woman I know uh, grew up uh, in a church, a, a, a substantial church. Uh, she went to Sunday school. She attended with her parents. She saw how little it seemed to actually be changing her parents' lives. And that was confusing to her. And, and she concluded that Christianity was basically, the church was basically a social networking place until Facebook could get invented. You know, um, and, uh, and then one day, partly out of boredom, she opened up the Bible. And she began to read the New Testament for herself. And something bizarre happened to her. It felt like there was a wisdom meeting her from those pages. And it wasn't just an abstract wisdom. There was a heartbeat in it uh, speaking to her through those pages. And, and she felt like it was describing life as it really is. And, and it was the pages were describing the way people really are beneath the surface of things. And it was picturing in this Jesus, this life that was so beautiful and so good. And, and she began hungering to find that life in deeper measure for herself. And, and as she read the words of Jesus, something deep down inside of her, and she was just kind of an atheist at this time, not believing much of anything, but something began to stir in her till almost in amazement she realized, I believe. I believe. And I want to know more. She discovered faith. Or been discovered. By the one who is the source of faith. A friend of mine uh, who chairs a, a major department at Yale University now. Was driving across the country. On his way back to, to college at Stanford University. And, and when he was a kid his mom had prayed for him all the time. His mom was a really active follower of Jesus, and she prayed that her son would wake up one day and come to love Jesus as much as Jesus loved him. And uh, her mom, his mom really prayed this, but my friend noticed that, her, that his mom's prayers had not saved her from dying of breast cancer when we were seniors in high school. And that just drove him further and further away from the faith. And then here he is, out on this long journey, all by himself, early, early in the morning, driving across the, the desert of the American West. When all of a sudden, the sun bursts up over the horizon behind him. And, and he first catches the explosion of light in his rearview mirror. And then, right in front of him, these mountains that have been there all along suddenly irradiated with the most dazzling, iridescent, golden light. And, and, and a, a nanosecond later, there comes this flooding feeling that sweeps over my friend. It's, no matter, it's, it's faster than he can drive. And he feels this warmth flooding up through him, and he says out loud, Oh my God, you are real. And he's one of the most committed followers of Jesus today I know. I know so many more stories like this. I know about people that can't even point to a particular day that it happened. It was like the sun just gradually warmed up and they were just always somehow aware that God was there and 
And as they've gotten older, it's a, it's a more and more important part of their lives. I think of the uh, person I know who, who was an unbeliever until the moment she held her newborn baby in her arms and like, I can't, somehow I know you're real. I talked to a guy last week. He's a very scientific, intellectual guy. He was on the train. Somebody had given him a copy of Lee Strobel's um, The Case for a Creator. And he, he opened it up, and it was by thumbing through the pages of that that he progressively began to find scientific evidence that led him to a place where he said, you know, there's more reasons to believe than, than not to believe. And he's one of the leaders in our high school ministry today. There are so many ways of discovering faith. A man walked into a room I was in one night. He was an alcoholic. He was in desperation. He sat down at the table with us. And he heard about God's love and came to this unfolding awareness that God had actually been trying to reach him all of the days of his life. There had been a pattern in the pain. There had been a pursuer seeking him. And I was there at the moment when he, he said, in effect, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner and I need, your sa- I need saving. Help me to follow you. And it's been awesome to watch the, the transformation of this person who was so turned in on his addiction on himself. And now I just watch him unfolding. People at the discovering faith season of life often have these things going on. They have this rising sense of awareness of God's presence and His action in the world. There may be in them this thirst or hunger for meaning and direction in their lives or for a solution to an inner longing for which the answer increasingly seems to them to be God. God is the answer. Sometimes there's this feeling of attraction Uh, to the person of Jesus. That's the way it was with me, though sometimes they're still very resistant to organized religion. I didn't start attending a church regularly for three or four years after the time I first came into a relationship with Jesus. I was slow. I was just hostile towards organized Christianity. Um, As I was discovering faith. In the end... All of these people in this season of life come to a place where they know they need to turn away from something they've been attached to, some way of life, some pattern of being, some system of beliefs, and turn toward Jesus and take steps in that direction. And this act of turning has a theological word. You know what it is? Repentance. Repentance. And discovering faith is is about getting to that point where we see enough that we say, ah, I'm going this way now. Even when we have tons of questions still. Discovered by God. Now discovering God. They want to receive Christ. They want to begin an intentional journey with Him. And, and this is what happens to Zacchaeus. This is just what happens to Zacchaeus. Surrounded by this huge crowd of admirers. Jesus is being thronged by this 
giant crowd of admirers in the streets of Jericho, Jesus spies the one person, maybe there were more, but at least one person ready to be a disciple. He spies him up in that tree. There are lots of admirers of Jesus, always. Churches are filled sometimes with admirers of Jesus. Youth groups are filled with admirers of Jesus. But discipleship is more than just admiring him. Discipleship is turning and going with him in an intentional way. And the Bible says that that Jesus, seeing Zacchaeus in the tree, calls him down from the tree. And and, and what he says is fascinating. He says, says, um, I want you to come and I'm going to I'm going to stay at your house today. I'm going to enter into your life. I'm going to I'm going to take up residence in your life, Zacchaeus. And Jesus goes and all of the people can't believe what they're seeing. The Bible says that all the people who saw this were seriously ticked off. That's a theological term. They were really angry. Because they couldn't understand how Jesus could possibly be interested in somebody who had spent most of his life ignoring God and doing wrong. But God, this is very important, God is always far less interested in what we have been than in what we are willing with his grace to become. And the story of Zacchaeus is one more reminder of that. His repentant heart, his readiness to take the next step with Jesus is enough for Jesus. And we see the turning of Zacchaeus' life in this fact that he makes this pledge to not only repay what he's stolen, right? His whole life sort of been about in, in curvatus in say, pulling everything into his own bank account and his own life. And now he says, I'm going to not only pay back what I have taken, but four times that amount. It's a Christ-like movement. God, perfect, sufficient in himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chooses to create the world and cross time and space as Jesus to come along us, inside of us, to pour out his life's blood, to give himself away. It's the exact opposite of the incurvatus in se, this love of Christ, the love of God. And we see this now starting to transform the life of Zacchaeus. And then Jesus goes on and says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You remember about Abraham, don't you? You remember him? You read about him in the earlier part of the storyline? He's the father of the Hebrew people. And how old is he when he discovers faith? Seventy-five. <laughs> it takes him that long. To, to, to wake up to the God who's passing through his life. But when he does, when he is discovered by God and, 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 and starts to discover God himself, Abraham sets off on this journey. He leaves behind Ur of the Chaldees and he sets off on this journey now following the call of God. And, and it is not an easy journey. And, 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 and Abraham makes mistakes on that journey. It's a long pilgrimage. There are failures. There are doubts. There are struggles for Abraham. But on that pathway, if you remember the storyline, on that pathway, Abraham, like Zacchaeus, like a lot of us, in spite of the imperfection, the stumbling, the wandering, comes to discover 
more and more of God's glory. And how blessed and what a blessing is the life that follows God. What about you? That's my final question today. What about you? What do you want for your life? What are you pursuing? What's the goal? Do you want to know more of God? Do you want to? Do you want to be transformed from the inside out? Do you want to watch a love that endures forever, growing in your life and then moving through your life out towards other people? Is that the hunger you have? If so, if so, take a step. The study guides we've given you suggest some ways. But take some step to journey with Jesus. Because he promises, if you want to see this happen in your life, then take a step, follow me, come, says Jesus, and you will see. Let's pray together. Lord, if there's um, even one of us here today who's who's at that place where um, that dawning sense of awareness or that racking sense of inner need is is really a sign that you want to and are about to do something wonderful in his or her life, I pray you'd help that person, Lord, take a step from here. So they can see more of you, Jesus. And if there's some of us in this room today who've been up in the tree for a while watching, admiring, when it has been your desire to do more, Lord, help us to hear your voice calling us down and asking us to let you take up residence in our lives, to renovate and renew and transform us room by room. And Lord God, if you, some of us are blessed to have be at a different place in the journey and we're simply alongside of people who are starting to discover faith, Lord, help us be, to be loving companions on the journey with them. Thank you so much for the witness of what you have done through so many people over history. Thank you for what you've shown each of us of yourself. Give us eyes to see what you are doing and to join you there in the name of Jesus and for the blessing of this world. Amen.